Greetings, everybody. It's Shaco coming at you. Um, excited for today's episode. Uh, a full deck. We are, we, are, we are locked and loaded and ready to talk about Woodstock 99, peace, <laughs> love, and rage. Gentlemen, <laughs> I've got one thing to say, and that's, I feel like shit. I feel like shit. <laughs> this is the worst fucking documentary I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> this is the wor- This is... No, like, in the first, like, 30 minutes, I was like, this is as good as buck-breaking. And then <laughs> in the remaining interminable 90 minutes, I was like, no, buck-breaking is literally exponentially better. <laughs> this is... It's less it, offensive. I'll give it that. It is less <laughs> offensive. Like, it, it's, the, it's made with... I unfairly said they were made with equal skill. No, this was made with less skill. Uh, they... To have no like interest in any like chronological continuity or narrative, like they, they their their way of putting together like a narrative arc for a documentary is just to like show you the thing and then put piano music behind this. Like I'm convinced this movie was made by like the guy. This is made by the nephew of a guy who owns a like rights free piano music company. <laughs> I, I, I like everyone they interviewed in this was a fucking sim or oblivion NPC. <laughs> like they were just everyone they talked to was like falling into the skybox and rotating around. Everyone they talked to was such a fucking dumb piece of shit. Not even in, in an interesting way. They would uh, when they, their brain ran brains ran out of words. They would uh, they would just recount an individual event and go. And that's a perfect metaphor. They'd be like, oh yeah, someone. Uh, yeah, so someone was tabling for a, a gun safety thing, and then like someone smoked a bong. And if that's not a good, perfect metaphor, I don't know what it is. A metaphor for what? What is any of this America. a metaphor for? It's a metaphor for America. I hate it so fucking much. I hate the people that made this. You should have to get a license from the government to make a documentary. <laughs> well, like I said, we got a lot to talk about today. We are we are we are, we are delving back into the into this. Um, one of the most glibly sensationalized pieces of cultural history I think I've ever ever witnessed, courtesy of producer Bill Simmons. And like that, that should have been a dead giveaway from the opening credits where this movie was going to go. But like I said, we're locked and loaded. And uh, on mic today, we have resident music expert uh, Chris Wade. I will also be bringing my expertise as a music festival uh, promoter and producer. And of course, we have Woodstock 99 attendee. Brian Quimby of Street Fight Radio, welcome back, my friend. My uh, uh, one great, my one great achievement was that I uh, uh, decided to blow a whole paycheck and sit around and be hungry and dirty for three days back in uh, nineteen ninety nine. Well, well Brian, that isn't, a, that isn't a perfect metaphor. I don't know what is. Look, I'm someone in the documentary. <laughs> well, Brian, and it's no coincidence that the guys who were dirty there ended up being the guys that stormed the Capitol. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, though. Statistically, there has to be one guy who was at both of those events, right? Yeah, and there's statistically someone who went to Lilith Fair and like incinerated Afghan villagers. What's the point? <laughs> That's true. Like, what, who fucking cares? What's That's your very true. Point? So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, so yeah, uh, Brian Quimby's decision to uh, bl- blow a full paycheck to be uh, sweaty, dirty, and tired for three days. Um, uh, th- this film would argue that it Brian personally laid a cobblestone. Mm-hmm on the path to Donald Trump and white male rage and the January 6th riot. This is a movie, this is a documentary 
that uh, as Felix was was describing earlier, uh, it's it's about Woodstock '99. I mean, we all we all know the acts, we all know the the, the generally nefarious reputation of this this music festival. But like, this is a documentary that features music journalists talking about Woodstock '99 and them covering it like it was Beirut in the 1980s. I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about okay. They talk about Fred Durst in this movie like he is Osama bin Laden. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, it's funny because, like, the thing I always go back to when I think about when I went to this festival is when I got there and uh, uh, it already smelled bad. And uh, James Brown was just finishing his set. And then Jamiroquai came on stage and I looked at the fucking stage and I saw Jamiroquai like doing his thing. I was like, this thing fucking sucks. And I'm like, that is <laughs> what this I understand where the documentary would say, like, this thing was was a lot of people with white male rage. But I mean, you know, I also laid on the ground and watched the roots. It was it was it's like a really weird documentary to to put nefarious like every dude that went to this thing had like nefarious reasons for being at this thing and then ended up, you know, working in the Donald Trump cabinet at some point. <laughs> According to this movie, like young men were never like scary or violent until Fred Durst was like, yo, if you don't give a fuck, put up your middle fingers. <laughs> like there are parts in this movie where they're like, uh, you know, these young men were going doo-doo everywhere and drinking, <laughs> drinking beer. And, and it, it, like, I love the, the somber tones. And they're like, they took their beer away, but they let them bring drugs in. And in, like, 99, what was that? Like, the worst weed of all time? Like, weed that looks like Domino's oregano? <laughs> it, it made them too aggressive. And then they're like, and if you didn't, if you didn't think that scary... Kid Rock got on stage and put up middle fingers. That's what activated the rape gene in men. It wasn't present like, before. Like when they talk about Woodstock, they like talk about Woodstock '69 in this, and it's like there are only ten cases of sexual assault at Woodstock '99 or '69. It's like, yeah, sure, man. Whatever the fuck you want to believe. Yeah, sure, you fucking moron. It is funny. To are you think are you serious? Like, god damn it. It is funny to think that, like, the, the, the real theory this movie posits is that, like, in from 1990 to 1995, music was very feminist and woke, and, like, all these guys that went to go see Corn and Limp Biscuit were actually feminists all the way up until 1994 when Corn <laughs> released their first album, and then they were like, I'm a fucking maniac! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel and like shit. The, shit. the shit they show that, like, sets them off is like just like it's like yeah like Scott Stapp being like it's so fucking hot out <laughs> like, like if that sets you off <laughs> so there's just barely anything holding you together man yeah so like as Brian points out like the the the, the film opens and it, it sets up this question like you know what what happens to America and American popular culture to go from the, the general pleasant good vibes of Woodstock 94 which was, which were you know progressive and socially uplifting to the you know orgy of nihilistic rape and destruction that was Woodstock '99, and the the answer to that question is that basically they blame new metal and they treat they treat new metal at like like the satanic panic treated Judas Priest in like the 1980s like like the 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 absolute like peevish glib 
fucking attack on like the artists in this movie or I mean even if you don't like them like I, I just I, I thought it was like reprehensible they might yeah. be I mean there is like here's the thing though there is a new metal revival happening right now and having people come out against new metal was what made it huge in the late 90s and hey, you know, I have a new metal podcast, so that's good for me if that happens. <laughs> well, yeah, but we welcome like, your hate. This is yeah. like 20, 2021. Like, can you imagine what the industry plant new metal bands are going to be like? It's going to be like they're going to be singing about like the oh, it's so hard being a middle child. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what they're doing before. <laughs> that's yeah, what's true, funny actually. too. That's, that's what's funny too about this is like the thing that I think pissed me off most of all was. The the way that they treated Limp Biscuit here was was very strange because they didn't say anything about the fact that the riot happened like over twenty four hours after Limp Biscuit played. Like you can't blame them for the whole riot. I I I have to say I was in like the front area of that pit where they were uh, floating people on the uh, plywood. It was very scary, and I ran as fast as I could to get out <laughs> after, like, two songs. But, like, everything chilled back out immediately after Limp Biscuit. Rage Against the Machine came on. They didn't talk to the audience. Uh, they just did a straight-ahead set, and things seemed to calm down after Limp Biscuit. Brian, at no point did Rage Against the Machine ask how many Zapatistas we got out there? No. <laughs> the best the best stage banter from Woodstock 99 is actually, you can hear it on Spotify if you go look up Adidas from Corn on there. And in the middle of the song, Jonathan Davis just yells, how many of you all like the fuck? How many people out there like the fuck? And the crowd just goes insane. That, that, may, that may be funny to you, but that actually caused the Oklahoma City bombing. I know that happened several years before, but... That's, That's very funny. Uh, in in light of uh, Jonathan Davis's interview in this movie, where he talks about how he felt like transported, how he felt like he had to do the greatest thing he could, the greatest performance of his life, because there was just so many people and there was so much energy, and that culminates in him just going, "How many of you like to fuck?" <laughs> and then he's like, "I collapsed afterwards. I was a husk. I had I had performed my heart out by asking them if they liked fucking." Well, I will say that that corn set is fucking great. It's uh, insane. And Jonathan Davis looks amazing. He has like an Adidas-themed kilt suit on. <laughs> there is something about being that far away from a stage where music is happening and there's still a mosh pit. Like, as far as you can see in front of you and as far as you can see behind you, it's one of those, like, most incredible feelings I've ever had at a show. And, like... I went to Austin City Limits the year before the pandemic, and the only thing I've ever seen that came close to that was uh, I watched Lizzo, and it was the same kind of <laughs> size of an audience, but it was like a lot of white ladies just going fucking bonkers for it. Yeah, no, that's tid the season for Warren voters. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So, I mean, it's like, you know, if you're unaware, like Woodstock 99 was like, you know, just another another totally cynical cash in, you know, after after the relative success of Woodstock 94, which, you know, all things considered was was regarded as like a big success. And they were like, oh, well, you know, five years later, let's just do Woodstock 99. And, you know, the lineup was, you know, we mentioned a few of them, but we're talking uh, Corn, Kid Rock. 
DMX, Limp Biscuit, Insane Clown Posse, Metallica, uh, Dave Man, Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> so Jewel. And, uh, yeah, Jewel, Cheryl Crow, Lennis Moore said like their their single the part is being like like they, they they were the female artists who were like in danger because like you know because uh, of the the aggro bro energy of, of uh, the the other artists who were booked. But I mean, uh, uh, so like the the one thing I didn't know about Woodstock '99 is uh, the 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 setting for this concert was at a decommissioned Air Force base in Rome, New York. And I thought that was funny because the organizers of the concert were like, this is the best venue that we've ever done. Like, you know, like the, the, the facilities are like nothing we've ever seen before. But basically all they were talking about was because it was a former Air Force base. So they had like, I don't know, <laughs> B-52 <laughs> nuclear bombers stationed on it. You could not sneak into this concert. <laughs> It was like everyone has to pay. Yeah, it was a huge outdoor space, but it was like locked down with serious military grade fencing, which was like a big problem they had at Woodstock 94 because a lot of people got in for free. So they were like, oh, we lost money. So like, let's just host this literally on a military base. And, you know, I mean, like one of the things they they talked like one of the problems that they faced, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, just chance and happenstance was that it was like 110 degrees outside, no shade. And like it was all a fucking tarmac. So could you just like just imagine how fucking hot that was? Well, let's a- let's ask Brian how hot was it? <laughs> it was miserable. And also like like they said this in the documentary in like a really short time but but like the stages were a mile apart. So it wasn't like a like a music festival now. The stages are like kind of relatively close. There's grass and there's shade and there's water and uh you can sit down and relax, but if you're at this show you know, you get there, you get the schedule of the bands, and you know that you're going to be walking back and forth between these two stages. And it's just people are walking miles all day in this fucking heat. And I do distinctly remember there was zero shade at this thing. There was just, I look at pictures of myself from when I was there, and I look like I'm fucking dying. There was nowhere to go. (laughs) People were leaning up against the MTV thing, which that's my favorite part of the documentary because it's something that uh, people haven't really seen that I got to see. But if an MTV VJ went to interview somebody, they were so confrontational. It was like (laughs) you could tell they were fucking terrified and they do show like a guy that is wasted and he's like, you need to quit playing that Backstreet Boys shit on there. (laughs) (laughs) And it rules so much. They talked, they interviewed Dave Holmes of MTV News for this documentary and he talks about covering Woodstock 99 like it was the fall of Saigon. And like, (laughs) and, and you know, and, and, and like he frames it in the like, you know, he was like, you know, 1999 was an interesting time. And I'm like, slow down, Dave. <laughs> slow down. <laughs> yeah. well, that's and, no, what... and he says it's interesting because like he was like, you know, TRL and Carson Daly, like they, they were at the center of like popular culture at the time, which was defined by on MTV, the, the clash between the kind of the boy band uh, sort of like teeny bopper pop music. And the kind of like angry cargo shorts, baseball hat wearing, new metal crowd, and and that crowd, and like and Woodstock '99 was like the acts that were booked for it. Um, th- this was the, sort of their, I don't know, last hurrah, or the, this was this was their 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 their, their cultural broadside against you know In Sync and the Backstreet Boys. But like Dave Holmes was like, uh, in retrospect, that we were playing with fire, and this was actually really <laughs> scary and dangerous. It's like that part. That's when I immediately knew what type of documentary this was, because it's like it was like they were doing Waltz with Bashir about like 
a killing Barney song being sung on a playground. <laughs> it's and it, it's like the implication there is like Backstreet Boys and Insync that represents all women and the flattened category of people of color. Just these <laughs> groups of white guys who are molested by a blimp salesman. <laughs> That's that's all the marginalized communities, and the worst thing you can do is like think that they're lame in 1999. One thing I was thinking about of just how much culture has changed is like they show a clip of I don't know maybe it's one of the guys from The Offspring or something. Uh, they have like a um, facsimile of the Backstreet Boys, like a little mannequins of the Backstreet Boys, and he's like bopping their heads off with a wiffle ball bat. And I was just thinking about like how much more fervent uh, culture is invested in pop culture right now. If like I don't know, one of the guys from like Twenty One Pilots did like an anti-pop thing and like knocked the heads off mannequins of of like BTS at a festival stage right now, they would be assassinated. Yeah, no, it would be <laughs> like, like a, fan, a fan army would send a pipe bomb to their house. They wouldn't be safe anywhere on Earth. No, <laughs> there's was... no there's no prison on Earth that could keep them that could keep them away from the people that w- would want to kill them. The, I mean, yeah, that shit was you so... wanted that that. Prison Island that Asalan is on. If you told BTS fans that he like said Jimin sucks, they would break into it and kill him. Yes, there's something about the passion of that time though against these bands, like where where the people were directly opposed to each other and they were just really passionate about this thing that I really liked. I I never saw it as like a a I wasn't ever going to go beat up a teenage girl. Because she listened to, and also it, it bears it, it bears saying that like at this time in ninety nine to like two thousand four, these new metal concerts weren't all dudes. Like new metal was enormous. It was a it was a pop culture force where it was like everybody went to these shows. I mean, I fucking my wife and I have seen ICP together thirty fucking times. <laughs> So it's like it, it wasn't a th- it wasn't so cut and dried like it was all dudes that were listening to this music and it was all like evil guys. It it was it was like the same people who listened to I I don't even fucking know what people listen to now. But it was the same people who who kind of listened to the just barely mainstream like people who listen to like one 100 gex is it 100 or 1000 gex where it's like uh, adult the band's hear, 100 gex the album's 1000 uh, gex yeah where adults hear it and they're like this fucking sucks i don't know what the fuck this is and kids are just like fuck you it kicks ass it's like the same energy has always fucking been there yeah no like you, you mentioned like uh, like one of my probably one of my favorite parts of the documentary is like they're interviewing dave holmes and he says of like you know the he, he says of of the idea that like total request live was like like feeding into like this beef between uh, Backstreet Boys and InSync and like the Limp Biscuit or whatever. He was like, "Yeah, uh, looking back on it, we were really playing with fire." And to illustrate that, they just cut to an interview with a teen from Woodstock '99 where he's like, "Yeah, I think InSync is shit." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The war, the war between Sesame Street and Barney, was a dangerous time in America. Yeah, it's like, that is the thing I love about this movie is they're so purposely vague in some parts and then so, like, directly accusatory of, like, yeah, accusing Fred Durst of starting a riot and then vague again where they go for an almost 25-year stretch to connect this to, like, yeah, the Capitol riot where it's, like, you could do this documentary in, like, 1975 and do this about, like... um, 
you know, Gary Tasteman's malt fest in 1953 <laughs> and talk about how scary it was. You can do it about he was, Altamont. He was, really? Uh, yeah. Disco demolition night. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. This has uh, always happened. This wasn't like some kind of thing that just popped up out of nowhere. And they treated it like that. And I also thought it was interesting just to like, for some reason, Columbine was tied into this oh, thing, yeah, which is another thing that was like video games and fucking music metal specifically was blamed for Columbine too. And it just felt like one of the, it felt like a focus on the family movie to no, me. That's yeah. what it is. No focus. This focus from the family shit, like parental advisory shit. It's like you do it from the left now, but it's like they're at least when like focus on the family did it, they would directly be like, no, like KDFM caused Columbine. Yeah. <laughs> like there's so there are songs about taking Eurorail caused a mass shooting, <laughs> but like this this does it in such a fucking Weasley way where the the combination of them not being able to bring themselves to say it directly and being really shitty filmmakers, where they try to do like a sort of Adam Courtesy thing of showing you a bunch of news events set set behind like. You know, like music that music that I assume you hear if you're diagnosed with cancer over Zoom. And so it'll be like Bill Clinton being impeached, Columbine, and then like, hey, I'm Carson Daly. And it's like, damn, all these things happened at once. <laughs> it would be not, it was the only thing that this movie did that I thought was honest and done well was uh, really expose the promoters. I I yes. just couldn't yeah. get enough of hearing the promoters talk and the press con I would love raw video of the press conferences from Woodstock 99. Well that would be a better documentary, but it's like again like if you get a if a concert promoter talks to you for more than 30 seconds, he's going to admit to like 700 sexual assaults yeah. <laughs> like it's not the hardest thing in the world like i did i did love the one guy who like i wrote down a bunch of things he said because they were so fucking stupid like m mind numbingly stupid uh he he had the one thing where he was like it's at the end of the movie after like the other guy has like basically blamed all those women for being raped uh <laughs> they they get they're like what do you think about that and he's like yeah, you know, the thing is about Woodstock, back when the first Woodstock happened, you know, it was like free love and drop out. But then you realize if everyone in the world did that, well, you know, that would be a problem. <laughs> it's like, good point, man. No, this, uh, the, the people who made this movie think that, like, the audience will be bowled over by revelations such, that, such as, you know, Woodstock was always kind of a mythology. And... It, it became all about money for Rolling Stone magazine. And it's just... Like, no! It's just like, come on, man. So I, I want to talk specifically. There, there are two talking heads featured in this movie that, uh, that normally, like, you know, when people were talking this movie, it was Zone Out City. This was Zone In, but, like, you know, I, I was texting with Matt while this was going on, and, like, like, like you, Matt, like, whenever these people came up on, t on, on the screen, I was yelling, shut the fuck up at my TV. It was Zone In directly. And the first one I want to talk about is fucking Moby. Because they try out Moby. They tried out Moby in this movie to be like a, a, an artist who fucking performed at Woodstock 99, as far as I know, hasn't given his check back for it. But like they tried him out to be like the voice of just 
the strident condemnation of not just like every other artist who performed at Woodstock 99, but like everyone who bought a ticket to see him perform. And like, he is just there. Like, like he shits all over the other acts. Um, like he's constantly talking about how like, mm, you know, Woodstock 99, like really missed an opportunity to like, you know, platform socially progressive music or whatever. <laughs> but you know, Chris, I like, like he, like he could not be, he, he was just like, he was just like, as soon as my set were over, like me and my band, we just, we felt it and we felt it in that like atavistic lizard part of our brain that like we were in danger and we had to leave immediately. And Chris, I got to shout out your wife and co-host uh, Molly, who had this uh, an excellent poll of Moby's original quote about performing at Woodstock 99. He said of it in the dance area th- th- where there were no rock bands, the vibe was terrific. Unfortunately, I didn't get laid. <laughs> that was his that was his quote at the time with the hindsight of, of 20 years to think about it he's been able to evolve his position uh from it sucks i didn't get laid to actually the vibes were fucked and i was uh keenly tuned into it the entire time and knew to leave immediately dude i, lo- I love that that's me dude <laughs> me on me on the bernie tour yo i'm not getting pussy this is gay me after the bernie tour i could feel the resentment in america as, uh, we do have to say Eminem was right about Moby. He was always yes. right about yes. Moby. <laughs> yeah, he was. He should have known. Yeah, no. There is something really satisfying about the part where he's looking out of his bus window at the piece of plywood with the yes. band names on it, and his name isn't on it. There's something so yes. satisfying yeah. about that. Yes, this is footage from Woodstock 99. He's like in his trailer, and there's like a big piece of plywood with like the logos of all the bands who are performing, and they all signed it, and he's like, I, I don't see my name on there. He's like, who are these bands? And he's just like listing off bands that are like all popular artists. And he's like, I've never heard of them. Buck and it was just cherry? Like, Who's heard yeah, of a buck cherry? And like uh, just Moby just has this like, I'm sorry, like he is anti-rock and roll. Like he is just, just straight up like anti-rocking. He, he's like the fucking crusty Dean in like a movie about rebellious high school students. <laughs> It is kind of wild that in this thing, they an hour and 50 minutes, they found time for this uh, archival footage of him whining about his name not being on the banner. Yeah, every, every major media company, Viacom, Universal, everyone has like a, a tape library that's just called Moby Crying. <laughs> um, I do love that Moby was in the rave area because it's like, who raves to Moby? Like what do you the fuck, what do you take to rave to Moby Gabba Penton? <laughs> I never went to the rave area or the, the believe it or not I never went to the independent film tent. I didn't <laughs> what the hell? And what kind of cineast are you? Man, you get a different Woodstock guest. <laughs> the drunk right, did you did, see? You didn't want to yeah, get yeah. like vibed out at like four in the afternoon and watch Buffalo '66. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, <laughs> well, you can hear, but yeah, Buck Cherry like drifting over the horizon. <laughs> I did this. The drum thing was crazy. Uh, but no, uh, uh, Brian, like, who, who were you there to see? And like, what was the best set that you saw at Woodstock 99? Oh, no. Now you're going to get me in trouble because I was there <laughs> to see Corn, Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine, uh, and, and ICP, basically. Uh, okay. uh, the best set was ICP because they're fucking crazy. And they had these, like, balls, uh, rubber balls with $100 taped to them. And they were kicking them into the audience and people were going fucking nuts for them. And then they brought out these huge rubber balls with $500 taped to them and kicked those into the audience. And the audience went absolutely apeshit for those. 
Then they had a guy come That's so out. Cool. I love that. It is cool. They had a guy come out that said, uh, uh, "Where the police, where the Rome police, we're shutting you down," and uh, they power bombed him through a table, and it was very <laughs> funny. The crowd went insane. And the other thing about ICP at this festival that really kicks ass is if you go look at any quotes by them about Woodstock 99, people are like, why'd you play Woodstock 99? And they're just like, they gave us $500,000. Like that's <laughs> why <yeah>. we went. <laughs> so I liked ICP. Uh, Lip Biscuit was uh, obviously like that, that set was something that like, when I think about that festival, one of the craziest things in my life is being in that pit for Limp Biscuit, being right near the front at the beginning. And just when I noticed how fucking crazy it was getting up there, I was like, I got to get out of the pit. And usually when you're at a concert, you step two steps and then you're out of the pit and you're, you know, you're safe. I had to run as fast as I could for a considerable amount of time <laughs> to get out of that pit. And it was just, it was incredible to see. It's really crazy to be in an audience with that with that sort of energy. And I didn't see it that day as being dark energy. Now, this movie takes stuff at, way out of context. I think somebody pointed out that during this set, Fred Durst tells people to cool out a little bit, too. It, before that wasn't stuff, in the movie. When, no, no. Before break stuff, when people when people are tearing things apart and climbing the thing he does say like i want you to reach down and take all that negative energy and get it out of you in this place but he also says like help each other out if somebody falls pick them up which is the ethic kind of behind mosh pits since the beginning of mosh pits so like i don't know i they really i can't I, I don't know why this movie ended up being a hit piece on both Fred Durst and for some fucking crazy reason, Anthony Kiedis, too. Which is <laughs> yes. Crazy. Oh, they, they, they paint him with a very rough brush at the end of this movie. But uh, just like <laughs> one more thing that Moby says in this movie that I want your guys to uh, thoughts on. Moby says one of the most fucking genius brain things I've ever heard at the end of this movie, <laughs> referring to the original Woodstock in 1969 positively. He's like, he's like, you know, uh, it, it may sound corny or whatever, but the original Woodstock was the largest and most peaceful, peaceful gathering of human beings in human history. And like, that's just a fact. <laughs> oh. And I was just like, <laughs> what? Like, I was like, like, wait, like probably 10 times as many people make the Hajj to Mecca like every year. And like, yeah, like a bunch of people usually get trampled to death or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, fair is fair. Like, there's a lot of fucking people. <laughs> yeah. The, the, and, and like, to the, the credit the of the day, film... The, the day the, after Pop Smoke died was like a bigger and like better, more peaceful public event. <laughs> And, like, to credit to the filmmakers, at least they included, like, some skepticism that the original Woodstock was, like, you know, three days of peace, love, and music. Because, you know, I mean, a lot of it was anything but. And, like, probably, yeah, Felix, as you pointed out, probably just as many sexual assaults and riots and fucking, like, property damage as Woodstock 99. But Moby's like, yeah, it was the most peaceful gathering of human beings in human history. And What's so funny like, is that they actually had a little debunking of that earlier in the documentary. Yeah. Where they say, uh, yeah, it's so sort of like remember through rose-colored glasses, and then there's fucking Moby wearing rose-colored glasses at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, he didn't bring up the up-against-the-wall motherfucker crew that they bring up earlier in a thing, which, by the way, for 1969, a very cool name. 
to to call your your crew that's marauding Woodstock the up against the wall motherfuckers. Yeah, I don't know that. That's like on paper it sounds cool, but in reality it's like that's a group of guys that like tried to get a groovy hand job, like, yeah, greater like, and like didn't get it, and they're like, this sucks. Give me more brown weed. They also like they did they did also like when they talk about the up against the wall motherfuckers though like they explain what they did at the festival and it's functionally almost exactly the same thing that happened at Woodstock 99 without the fires that's all it's just fires and the fires are the like least scary thing. It, like those, I don't know why people are so freaked out by the fires. If like like somebody was, was indoors, to, yeah, like somebody was going to accidentally wander into the fire or something. Like that. Well, yeah, yeah, that, like the uh, the like tonal shifts of this movie are so interesting because like the things that they talk about with the most gravity are the fires. Um, the people bringing in like the most stepped on ecstasy ever in human history. <laughs> and uh, when DMX had the crowd rap along the N word. Okay. I well, gotta talk by about the way, that. has happened at like, I'd say four out of five rap concerts I've gone to. That's not like same a here event. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, but then like they, like they overdo it so much. Like they overdo it with the somber piano that when they talk about something that's actually like, harrowing and terrible, like they talk about like, like they're talking to the providers and they're like, yeah, like all these girls were sexually assaulted. Like this was this is really bad. They're, like these like these women were treated really badly. Like they are at like kind of every music festival. Um, they talk. They just like don't do the somber piano and bring it over to like one of the numbskull boomers. And he's like, yeah, you know the thing is, man, when you get a lot of people in one space, you get all types of people, and you can you can have a buffet. But if you don't, you don't have an ice cream bar. No one's getting dessert. <laughs> and it's like, what, man? What? Like that's when that's when that guy said the thing. They were like, yeah, all like tons of girls like got raped, and like this was, uh, you know, you caused uh, January sixth or whatever. And he's that's when he says the thing where he's like, yeah, if you think about it, everyone in the world's going to a concert sounds good. But then it's like, who's going to work at the pharmacy? <laughs> These are just, this is just some of the wisdom I've gotten my 63 years on the planet. It also I does think. kind of a disservice to the, 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 when part of this documentary is they talk about the pay-per-view that people watched, uh, where like they said, the cameramen were, were following women around that were naked or, or pulling their shirts up or taking their shirts off. And then they proceed to just show Scene Tons. after scene yes. of woman with their shirt off. <laughs> yeah, there was yeah. no blurring. Yeah, it's 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 a real uh, kind of puerile whiplash. Between it, yeah, they didn't their... blur out any of the women's faces. Like, and, and these are these are like many of them are probably teenage girls. Like all of all like the women, all, all the all the concert footage of women flashing. They didn't blur out a single person's face to like no. the, like the, the nonstop parade of nudity that was in this movie. But uh, Felix, you brought it up, and like uh, we, we got to talk about this because like this to me it was the most insane and jaw-dropping moment in this movie, featuring the second person who I was screaming at the TV every time they were on. Probably the most cloying and pretentious talking head I've ever seen in a documentary. I'm referring to Wesley Morris of the New York Times, (laughs) who uh, Mm. is there to talk about DMX's set. And, like... Amazing set. This is just, like, like... and not only was this like a this like totally insulting to DMX, but like what he said looks like so like 
during DMX's set. And like, you know, incredible thing about that is like he like he didn't have a band or anything. It's just one guy in overalls like performing to a, like a, on a giant stage to a crowd of like half a million people. And probably he's got one them of all the, in the palm of his hands. One of the best rap performances of all time. Yeah. To go in front of a crowd that's like some of them are his audience, but not like definitely not the majority, and just like totally take command, get everyone involved. Like he fucking kills it. He kills every verse. And this is like a recently deceased beloved artist. They talk. The main thing they talk about DMX for is they're basically implying he's like a traitor to his race well, for having people sing a- along the N word, which is I have seen so many fucking rappers do that. I'm sorry. This guy talks about it like the audience tricked DMX into doing his song. My Baggins, you know, see what I did there? Said it backwards. Um, no, but like, so it's like this call and response thing and like the crowd is going along with him. And like th- this guy, Wesley Morris, is just like, he was just like everyone in the audience who knew what they were doing. They were hoping that he was going to perform that song just so they could do that. And I'm like, oh, he well, was going to yeah, perform yeah. the one DMX song with the N word in it. You fucking idiot. <laughs> and it's also like, yeah, of course they were waiting for him to do that song. It's a great song. It was like a big single off his like chart topping album at the time. And it's just like, this idea of it. Like, like, like the DMX was like unaware or taken off guard, like taken aback by like his very clear invitation to the crowd to sing along the chorus with him, like pointing the mic to the, the microphone. Yeah. yeah. You can hear it. You can hear thousands of people. He says it, and it comes back at him at twice the intensity. And what's so chilling about it is they were ready to do it. I've seen Freddie Gibbs do it. I've seen Kanye do it. I've seen, like, it's a pretty common thing. I, and, I went to a Kanye concert once where before he played Gold Digger, he explicitly took to the mic and told the audience, this is the number one song in the world right now. So I want all you white people out there singing every word to it. <laughs> I'm explicitly I, giving you permission. I saw Schoolboy Q do the same thing, like stop a song in the middle and say, why aren't you people singing this song? It's OK if you sing this song like I saw that guy basically beg the audience to say the N word, and everybody turned and looked at, looked at each other and was like, "I'm I, I don't think I'm going to do." That. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, where were you during the uh, the song, Brian? Where were you doing the DMX set? Yeah, we're holding you accountable. I like I was yelling the N word during the DMX. <laughs> I I I like this isn't Wesley Morris's fault. It's more like the editors of this documentary. But where this segment is, it's towards the beginning of the movie really like fucking pissed me off because it is very upsetting like in and of itself it's like just an annoying thing to say that like dmx was tricked by the audience doing this thing that rappers always do and to talk about dmx that way like so soon after he's died but also like the fact they put that like near the beginning and have it in their in their own like clumsy, unsubtle, shitty narration, basically implying like this is what kicked everything off. This is what got the ball rolling. Is when DMX <laughs> did that. It's like fucking suck my dick, Bill Simmons. I wish you would fucking gamble with like the actual Russian mafia, and they could cut <laughs> off your documentary producing hand. <laughs> it would be nice. Well, it would have been another a thing that really I think bothered me quite a bit is is that like you know there are heavy metal journalists out there there's like a lot of people who who review metal for for websites and stuff like that that you could have probably talked to to try to get an understanding 
of uh, maybe what was going through the minds of the people at the time. And, and it was, it was really people who were like dying for the strokes to take off in 1999. <laughs> and just like, like it was all spin riders. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I forget who who said this, but there was one guy who, who somebody w- was like, "There's a lot of metal that's about joy and uplifting and about that's Moby." Uh, that was know, Moby. Oh, the oh, about Moby. Yeah, Moby's about talking about the, Bur- good- he's talking about Burzum. He's talking about Thulian Mysteries. His favorite album. <laughs> like I would I would like to hear this all positivity metal. That's I don't know that's that. Vo- that's Varg song about burning down the churches. <laughs> <laughs> I finally like, did I, it. We're free from the Jewish Christians. <laughs> <laughs> just like the one last thing I want to say about like the, the Wesley Morris DMX thing is that he said that like this performance at Woodstock '99, I believe he said it was like unprecedented in that it was like the first time ever that like a, a black artist was performing for like a majority white audience in which he gave them license to say the N word, which is like first of all, I don't think that's true, and second of it's all, you just said it. You just said it. He gave them license to say it. So it's like, well, what, you should get mad at him, not the fucking audience. Like, but, but Wesley Morris does this really fucking wormy thing where it's like, well, imagine how it felt for anyone who wasn't white after that. Like, yeah. like, like DMX was directly harming them by doing that. That has been that shit. Like, I would love for them to like get a music journalist who actually like likes or knows anything about music because that has been going on since hip hop became a national phenomenon. Like I'm sorry, you can agree with it or disagree with it, but that has not—that's not the first time that's happened, at all. And no, you know, like, and, and, and the thing is, like, I think that I think the, the the way they bring up DMX is very interesting because, like, like it's a, it's a very small part of the movie. Like, you know, like the the roots get like like Black Thought is like interviewed for like two like very brief segments. They show a little bit of their set, and like DMX is like really the only other like like and Wyclef, I suppose, but like. Like, it's a very small part of Woodstock 99. They're a very small part of this documentary. And, like, the vast majority of the documentary is this kind of, uh, like I said, like, um, pearl-clutching condemnation of new metal, which they, they tar with this brush of being, you know, uh, misogynistic, violent, and nihilistic. And it's just like, well, look, you can say that, like, an artist like DMX comes by his lyrics and his violent imagination more honestly than someone like Fred Durst because of the way he, you know, grew up and the world that shaped him. But at the same time, it's just like, look, if you're not going to fucking, uh, like, if you're not going to condemn DMX for the violent misogyny and, like, darkness in his music, it seems a little, it just seems a little Weasley to just be like, oh, don't look at DMX's music. Like, his music is fine and good and uplifting. It's Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit that are really the problem because they're sort of pretending to do the same thing. I mean, but, like, when in, in fact, they're like, they're both kind of doing the same thing. They I mean, are, like, their music well, I, is angry and, and, you know, at times misogynistic. Well, I will, I will like, defend DMX here. I would say that DMX's music is, like, far more introspective Obviously. than Kid Rock's, at least. Yeah, it is, for sure. It, it is well, you, like, need, you need to check out the early st- Kid Rock stuff. <laughs> no, you don't. Like, Felix, you don't. <laughs> yeah, I figured I don't. But, like, listen to Black it, Chick, but, White but, Guy, I think. If, if you want to hear a great song... Listen to Black Chick White Guy where where Kid Rock does drop the N N bomb in that song awesome. and it is telling the story of his first kid being born and it's probably got the funniest lyrics uh, uh of any any metal song I've ever heard but uh you, you, you know I, 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 the big like, problem to me is looking they are with the DMX stuff especially I think you're looking at 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 1999 with with 2021 eyes here because just things things were I, I talked about this with Chris on his show once like 
in the early hardcore days where where hardcore punk days a lot of people like used nazi imagery they they mm-hmm. used ss in their name and they fucking put uh, uh swastikas on and stuff like that when they went on stage and it wasn't because they were nazis it was just because like at that time that was considered a provocative thing to do that wasn't off limits and like so some of this stuff in this movie that's like, uh, oh, Girls Gone Wild and stuff like that, it's like, that's just like what was happening. And it wasn't a new thing. It was just a, a logical move to the next fucking thing. It wasn't like the girls that were going wild were the same girls that were at the Nirvana concerts three years before that. Yeah, I mean, like, I, like uh, to, to the earlier point about, like, uh, you know, oh, like Limp Bizkit, uh, like, did they cause a ride or not? I'll just mention that... Um, when Bill Haley and his band first did the, the first ever live performance of their song Rock Around the Clock, it was in Germany. It was considered like one of the first rock songs of all time, but it, it absolutely led to a riot of German teenagers. And that was the song Rock Around the Clock. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock rock led to a full-scale riot of German teenagers. No, yeah, that's why, they, like, the thing with Germany, like, why are they like that? They can't handle, like, anything. <laughs> like it, like you still the only like they they are working very closely with DARPA to figure out like the perfect hertz for the EDM that they allow Germans to have <laughs> because anything that would be like you know even David Guetta like that would be like the fourth Reich if you let the if the Germans had fucking you know oh sweetie baby in 1953 <laughs> they would have like they would have annexed France again it's just yeah, too but, much for them. They're they're like ADHD kids. Like they're too. It's not their fault. They're just like that. They're just like that. Like if Matt hears, that's why Matt doesn't really listen to music. It would make him too excited. That's true. <laughs> I can't handle it. I get overstimulated. But well, that's I a mean, great great point because even like if you think about like the the continuity, the the timeline of rock, rock music and and what changes and what is different. Lip Biscuit's music is treated as like some you know kind of demonic uh new manifestation something that has never occurred before but what is the difference essentially between one two three o'clock four o'clock rock we're gonna rock around the clock and we're gonna break something tonight. yeah like yeah. it is the exact yeah. same sentiment just with 40 years of musical evolution put behind it yeah that old that was like the limp biscuit of like the 1950s was that you wore like a bomber jacket instead of a suit and tie to the hamburger shop. Yes. You were People like, lost- you, you, you called your teacher daddy. O. <laughs> People lost their mind in the same way to boogie woogie bugle boy. When they heard that <laughs> fucking song, it, was, I, yeah. it wasn't a new thing at all. Yeah. No. Um, fats Domino was the XXX tentacion of his time. Right, yakety yak, don't talk back is a fucking song about talking back, regardless of what the lyrics say. Yeah, no, that led to an like, epidemic of kids talking back to their parents. Yeah, yeah, the yeah they, they wouldn't even take out the papers or the yak. trash. <laughs> if, you, if you think about the people who were alive at that time, like um, this was before they invented the pseudoscience of psychology, and like if these were all these people's like you know world war ii veteran parents were hearing these rock and roll songs and they thought they were back in the pacific they'd take out a gun and scare their wife i really thought we were past i i I really as i was watching this it 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 was crazy to hear somebody blaming music for something again because i i felt like i i've talked about this on on the pod cast at times and stuff like that where it's just like music can't do shit anymore 
Like, people don't give a shit about it enough to go fucking crazy about it or, or blame it for all of society's ills. It's basically just a bunch of adults saying, I don't like the sound of the music now. Like, fine, go listen to it, I, but I don't like it. And uh, this was, this called back to all of the other moral panics, the two the two live crew as nasty as they want to be panic the judas yeah. priest and ozzy osbourne like this movie seemed like that and then they yeah. weasel out of actually because they i think using the promoter's words in this movie weasels them out of people blaming uh, saying that they blamed corn yes. and limp biscuit and music because yes. it's such a profoundly unhip thing to do yeah, absolutely. They they really want to have it both ways, and like it's not like the docu- the make- makers of this documentary like short sell how ab- abominably run this music festival was, and how like the the sheer incompetence and unprofessionalism of like in- involved in like just letting anyone who could fog a mirror work security and like that not rules. having any not having any water or sewage or whatever. Like I mean, like obviously you pe- put pe- put five hundred thousand people in conditions like that, bad things are going to happen. But, like, they only do that so that they can get to the real meat of the documentary, which is, like, half, halfway, without fully having the courage of your convictions, straight up blaming, like, Kid Rock and Limp Bizkit. Another thing that they don't even touch on, just to detail the, that uh, incompetence, um, they talk about how incompetent the security staff is. They don't even mention that they were hemorrhaging security staff throughout the entire festival. And by Sunday night, I think that there were only, like, 100 security staff on site for, like, 500,000 people there uh, with no uh, with with no attempt to replace them or anything. I mean, yeah, the failure of Woodstock 99 is a failure of logistics and event management. That is the thing that I like ultimately, like my central criticism of this documentary that all the other problems with it spring out from. This documentary asks a kind of an interesting question, which is like, why was everyone so, why was like pissed, like the cultural thing even before 9-11? Like, why, why among, like, solidly middle-class people was, like, the feeling of being pissed so powerful? And you can go into some really interesting directions from there. And there's a lot you can talk about. You can talk about, like, American dominance in the world at the time, the problem you always have with, like, surplus young men, especially in an imperial corps. But they take incredible pains not to answer it and to not <laughs> answer it in the least interesting way possible. They end up half making Tipper Gore's argument than backing off from it, but not even not even being as engaging or as interesting as Tipper Gore. This is again, this it's like literally why Buckbreaking is a better documentary because it at least has the respect for its audience to take like a very a set of very bold positions and like argue them to their fullest extent rather than just sort of like half ask a question, a quarter answer it, and then leave the rest up to you after showing you some of the worst crafted and worst edited <laughs> montages of all time. Well, that's what happens when you make a movie that is completely stocked with cultural commentators and music critics. Mm-hmm. Their only explanations are going to be cultural. They can only talk about this stuff. And it, it, I think that weird like half ha, that half step thing where they kind of blame the music, but then they kind of step back from it is because, yeah, they know that that's corny. They remember PMRC. But at the same time, if they're trying to be cultural critics in the year 2021, then by definition, they're going to be talking about politics because politics and culture have completely fused. So they have to end up going down the road of 
fixing cultural explanations for these phenomena because they have no other vocabulary for it. But then they kind of know at the same time that that's for nerds. And so they can't, they kind of soft pedal it, but it, it leaves them with no real uh, insight at all. I mean, mm-hmm. well, I mean, so to go on the, uh, the, the culture and politics kick, I, I'd like to talk now about what was, I think probably the funniest moment in this movie of like actual concert footage, uh, Kid Rock's performance. So, uh, Kid Rock. <laughs> Did you comes see out Kid there. Rock? <laughs> Absolute fucking. Lo- I woke up. I woke up. Kid Rock. I'll tell you my fa- One of my other favorite stories is Kid Rock went on at one thirty in the afternoon. Uh, I woke up. I took a shower, and took a shower as in, in I feces. dumped a gallon of water over my head and rubbed <laughs> soap on myself. Uh, uh, and then we were like, we have to fucking get there for Kid Rock. But when we got there. The tragically hip was about to go on. <laughs> oh, yeah. I down. totally forgot they were at Woodstock '99, like the, the Canadian contingent. <laughs> so get, get those maple guys. leaves out, boys. So they start singing the Canadian national anthem <laughs> and waving Canadian flags, and people start fucking booing them and ripping the flags out of people's hands. I mean. I like a lot of their songs, but like also I support that. Like, don't come <laughs> here and sing that anthem. There's Fuck something off. so there's the 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 real victory of Woodstock '99. If there if there is one, is the tragically hip going on before Kid Rock and uh, Jewel going or Alanis Morissette going on right before Limp Biscuit is <laughs> amazing programming. Amazing programming. The mm-hmm. Roots right before ICP. So there was I love that that those programming choices <laughs> yeah. so much. Well, I mean like so uh, so 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 Kid Rock comes out on stage. It's a metaphor. And one of the music (laughs) critics literally says, you know, you could not pick a better metaphor for inequality in America. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) what do you think a metaphor is? He's kid rock. What do you think a metaphor is? He's in front of people who could afford to travel to a concert. (laughs) That's what the fuck are you talking about? And like, what, and like, explain to me what you think a metaphor is. You write for a living. And, like, the, and, the and pretending to like, be a rich, glamorous pimp is like part of the act. Like everyone understands like what's going on here. But uh, so it's just like my sorry, my favorite funniest moment of this documentary was the concert footage of Kid Rock in the middle of his set. Goes, he just grabs the mic and he's like, "You want me to get political? Well, this is about as deep as Kid Rock thinks." Monica Lewinsky is a fucking hoe, and Bill Clinton is a goddamn pimp. Monica Lewinsky is a fucking hoe, and Bill Clinton is a goddamn pimp. <laughs> Just la- I was laughing so hard at that. I was laughing so fucking hard at like kid- deep thoughts from Kid Rock. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is my favorite thing about the Talking Heads in this documentary: that they're music writers who don't seem to particularly like like or really know about music and. Don't seem to be like particularly good writers who like know what a metaphor or an analogy or anything is. <laughs> it is. It is funny. It, it, it's such a good point, Felix, that they spend a whole bunch of time at the beginning of this documentary saying like these were all upper middle class kids, and then Kid Rock comes out in a fur coat, and they're like, "Well, th- I mean, this guy's really pointing out inequality in America," and it's like almost everybody in our audience could have probably bought a fur coat if they wanted. <laughs> yeah. One. yeah, yeah. It, it's like. And is like a fur coat like is that the th- when people like are are 
aspiring to to a higher tax bracket is that what they're mainly thinking of oh uh, <laughs> when i when i when i'm become a millionaire i'll finally be able to have the fur coat that i want you know something else they show a lot in this movie that doesn't get a lot of explanation is the trash in the air you know like uh uh They'll show the crowd and there's just trash flying yeah, through the was, air. Yeah, yeah. Nuts. And they make it look like that was like this nefarious mean thing. But what they don't show is like the artists on stage that were doing kind of the heavier stuff or, or even the offspring who stink were they were saying throw trash at us. They were saying like pick something up off the ground and fucking throw it in the air. So people were just doing what the people on stage were asking them to do. And uh, uh, I thought that I, I thought that was really good. But they also the, they show this part of the because here's what I think. I don't think that the director of this documentary watched all of Woodstock 99. I think he listened. There is a podcast called Podcast 99. And then there is a, a ringer podcast about Woodstock 99. And I listened to both of those. And a lot of this stuff was called from from those podcasts. So they show Dexter Holland uh, beating up the Backstreet Boys, and then they yes. show him telling the audience it's not cool to grope people, which was also a thing that happened over and over and over again. So blaming the bands for, like, what are what are they supposed to do? What is, in the end... What is Fred? What was Fred Durst supposed to do? Was he supposed to like not play break stuff? Their hit at the time, just say, "No, nah, we're not going to play that." What What were any of these guys supposed to do? I just I don't understand what was so irresponsible about the musicians up on stage because I don't think I can figure out a way for them to have avoided this stuff happening, and I think it's so much easier, like like Chris said to to blame logistics when they had pictures of people rolling around in shit, which I did see. I did not get mud on me or walk through the mud, but I did see a woman covering herself in mud at one point. She's standing there. She's covering herself in mud. And, and there's two guys 10 feet away from her pissing in the same puddle that she was covering herself in. And that's, that was sort of the moment. That was one of the moments where I was like, man, this, this festival kind of kind of sucks. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, have, I understand yeah. why people were so pissed. Like, I, I totally get why people got pissed and tore the fucking place apart because it fucking sucked. They showed that woman bathing in the drinking water. And then they're like, but Fred Durst should have, you know, maybe gone off stage early, I guess, which also I've been in other riots at concerts. And when they do that, that's one of the ways that a yeah. riot starts. Like if Fred Durst had gone out there and done the Johnny Rotten, you ever get the feeling you've been cheated thing and walked off stage? Like can you can you imagine how much more like violent shit would have happened? Yeah, Fred Durst did the right thing. I think Fred Durst did the right thing. Like he played his set and walked and left the stage. That was it. it. It seems like the real case against him is that he he crowd surfed on a piece of plywood was was that they seemed very bothered by that, I think, which 
that plywood shit was really fucking dangerous. That that was the fence that people were surfing on, and that shit was thick. And I almost got like fucking knocked out by one of those pieces of wood just coming. I was in like a hole in the pit, and one of those pieces of wood came, and there was nobody really to catch it. And I just saw it flying towards my head. So that that was really fucking dangerous. But there's no way for Fred Durst to know that from the stage. Another another interest, like another I thought like kind of kind of glib and a little offensive like bit of like cultural commentary they did in this movie is that they really go to great lengths to contrast the rock music of Woodstock 99 with Kurt Cobain and Nirvana yep and they're just like they're like oh if Kurt Cobain hadn't killed if if the CIA hadn't murdered Kurt Cobain to make America misogynistic like grunge would have saved America or like if only if only the riot girl scene had lasted a little bit longer we could have like stopped Gamergate from happening and look like you know I I, I love Kurt Cobain's music I think Nirvana is a great band but like I I just didn't like the way they were using like like uh, Nirvana and particularly Kurt Cobain's uh, death to like really like shit on where music had gone like in the five or six years after that. And like and just hold it up like 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 grunge was this moment that could have cured or saved America from like this dark path that we've embarked on now. Well that's that is the thing about the riot girl and like punk scenes and everything. There there were no no men who commit rapes in those. There are no male no. predators in those. In fact, um, angry music is the only music where male predators are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, as a Fugazi didn't teenager. have to stop every show they ever did to tell their uh, to tell their fans to knock it off because they were being too violent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's only new metal and of course DMX, DMX who got the whole ball rolling. Right, as one of the dumbest teenagers in the whole world at the time, like I didn't. And and Kurt Cobain talks about this in his suicide note. I didn't know that shit was political or feminist or anything mm-hmm. like that it just sounded like rocking tunes at the time <laughs> and nope. and like it doesn't feel like such a weird jump from that to new metal i mean that's the jump i made i was into like nirvana and stone temple pilots and stuff like that and and then i heard the first corn album and i was like fuck this is this is this is music actually like made specifically for me because I had really liked rap when I was younger, but it kind of moved away from it and gotten into like the doors and Nirvana and stuff like that. And like the music was about like, they were mixing hip hop, which also gets them in trouble in this documentary when Moby brings up that like, yeah, there were like all these white rappers, but they took all the bad stuff with hip hop and they made it their whole thing. And uh, uh, it mixed rap with metal. And, and that's like what people liked, you know? Yes, it wasn't like specifically political, but like neither was Minor Threat really wasn't political. Like a lot of these bands would have never called themselves political. Scott Weiland was not like a politics guy or a feminist or anything. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you imply that people commit violent acts because of music and it awakened something evil in men that wasn't there before. Then you have to argue the other way that it also has a uniquely civilizing effect, which is, I think, even more insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah, that's, that's save the, the world. Like, like these guys have I, the musical journalists. Like I think they have some fantasy that they don't even recognize to themselves that if you you champion the right uh, art, it will. Yes, lead us to an Aquarian age. And I think that's a fantasy that we've all been stuck with since the fucking uh, 60s because all other avenues of political change are, are denied. 
So people just have to have people have to sustain the fantasy that there is some combination of sounds and images that people could be uh, uh, exposed to on a mass scale that will cause some sort of a phase shift in consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that it, their job is to encourage the good stuff and to condemn the bad stuff. And then maybe through enough of them doing that, they will they will create that resonant frequency that makes yeah. us all good good boys and girls. Remember how Radiohead was able to stop the Iraq war? Like, what are you <laughs> talking about, man? What the fuck are you talking? It's like, I would accept these positions if these were all hippies who, like, they overdosed on mids at Woodstock in the 60s and have just been woken up and are left with the same, like, idiotic delusions. The world has not disproved to them enough yet. But, like, after Vietnam, after everything, after the 80s, after everything, like, what, how can you still think that? You can only think that if that's the only thing keeping you from thinking that you're wasting your life. Right. I just yeah. watched that stupid 1971 uh, series on Apple TV. It, it stinks. Don't, well, I mean, it's okay. It's got some good footage or whatever. But I just watched it, and like all these artists and all these commentators spend all this time saying, like, music at this in 1971, music had the ability to change the world, and it did. And I'm like, the world fucking sucks. <laughs> and it has sucked since before 1971. So you're right. People just think that like there's like if everybody would just get into the right bands, everything would be fine. I do have to say, too, at the end of this doc, they talk about Coachella. It's like a commercial. Yeah, that's the good version. That's that's gallant to Woodstock 99's goofus. I I do love when like the, the low IQ boomer is like. Yeah, and then you see, though, at, at Coachella, you can pay a bunch of money and you can sit in a chair, and then you see that everything's a facade. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, could you explain what any of... What do you think you mean? What do well, you I think sent, what you just said meant? I sent Will a piece from Teen Vogue from 2018, and the headline is, Sexual Harassment Was Rampant at Coachella 2018. I interviewed 54 women at Coachella, and they all said they had been sexually harassed. And it's like, if you're making this documentary, before you do your Coachella commercial, you should like Google Coachella, because there's a bunch yeah. of bad shit also that happens at Coachella. Well, okay, like the, like the last like 10, 15 minutes of this movie are like a nauseating advertisement for the Coachella Music Festival in California. Mm-hmm. And they're entirely trying to make it like, oh, Coachella solved all the problems. There's no, there, there are no, there are no uh, sexual assaults or nothing bad. And it's not just a, a cynical, like price gouging fucking like orgy of fucking like just n- cultural nostalgia. And uh, fucking Moby is back again. And he's the one who like sets up this dichotomy because he's like, well, you know, uh, Coachella 99 happened the same summer. And, you know, Bjork was there and socially progressive hip hop music was like given a chance to breathe. And it was just like, shut the fuck up. By the way, uh, the, the other thing that uh, Molly brought up about fucking Moby getting on his high horse about fucking misogyny and like the, the bad treatment of women by men. Uh, the shit he did to Natalie Portman in his yeah. memoir about when she was like a fucking teenager saying that yes. like, oh, we yeah. dated or whatever. And then she was like, uh, like that never happened. He was a totally creepy older guy that was just like. Yeah, like being like real, real not cool with me. So, yeah, I mean, he's no, got some fucking brass neck to like appoint himself as like the arbiter of like positive masculinity in America. For, for him to talk shit about rap at all, like go fuck yourself, man. Yeah, he he was he. 
uh, that guy was the shits. By the way, the Coachella in 1999, the headliners for or for night two were Rage Against the Machine and Tool. Yeah, and like so there. <laughs> There was, I mean, Tool's not like cool, and people aren't going to go crazy for that. But people could go crazy for Rage they're Against not, the Machine. No, I'm not. Matt, I, I, Matt, I don't no, know. Wait, 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 Brian. They're not going to go crazy for Tool because they don't know enough math to really like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, have you ever seen someone break out a cosine in a Tool pit? <laughs> <laughs> you need a TI eighty seven to really get in the mosh pit for uh, the the Tool the Tool set. Yeah. I'm in the scary math. There's a lot of problems that I have to do. <laughs> I do think there is something to that because I think it speaks to at least some part of the uh, the class element of the uh, the assignment of dangerousness to Macho. And even when you're talking about like whether it's the Coachella 99 headliners or Woodstock 94 headliners who are, I think, in pop culture generally considered, I don't know, this good, sophisticated type of Macho, i.e. not uh, marketed and, and popular among, I, I don't know, people like uh, Brian in 1999 who spent their entire <laughs> paycheck to get to Woodstock 99. Like That is part of the thing here is that, like, oh, this is the low-class rock music. And that's why it's, uh, you know, it's dangerous because, you know, the people who are listening to it don't have the sophisticated understanding to parse the messages away from the music or, so, or something like that. Or it's like uh, Kid Rock in the, the mink coat, like the assumption that, oh, this is just a vulgar display of material excess, not like a joke about Kid Rock's whole thing of being, you know, the trailer park uh, nobility or whatever he wanted to portray about himself. You know, I, I, I think that there is that element of, of like class distinction here where it's easy to sneer at the people who are at an ICP concert, but not at the same people who are at, I don't know, a Nine Inch Nails concert five years earlier or at this one Rage Against the Machine concert or a different Rage Against the Machine concert at Coachella 99 three months later. Uh, that gets totally elided by the, uh, you know, the, the cultural part of this documentary. Well, I do have to say this. I am also, uh, uh, in, in two weeks, I'm very evilly going to the Gathering of the Juggalos. So yeah. I can Hell let yeah. you guys know what evil things I do when I'm there, I guess. <laughs> like, it just, you're right, Chris. There is, like, a class thing to this. Because, like, I mean, the people that I, I was, I mean... Look, I I hate I I people hate it when you say this, but like I was super white trash and so were all my friends and I probably still am. And and we were people who like I read Spin magazine and always felt like it was looking down its nose at me as mm -hmm. I was reading it. Like it was saying like you're simultaneously having Fred Durst on the cover of the magazine but also telling you that Fred Durst sucks and the people that listen <laughs> to it are the famous words they Spin called new metal fans mooks. And I think that like uh, which is such a weird like slang term. Yeah. But I I just think that like yeah, it was people like basically it was people commenting on the music that didn't like the music and didn't particularly like the people that liked the music and that was the only people that they got to talk on this thing and there's a netflix one coming that's a series great. that i'm like really curious <laughs> if they got it's going to be great. Four episodes about this. I, I, but, kept uh, just, uh, as, I just kept just yelling at my screen. Why didn't they interview Brian Quinby for this? They, I, if only they could have uh, cut to you, like one or two head uh, talking heads where they cut to you being like, Jonathan Davis is the coolest motherfucker on the fucking planet. And everybody who was there in the crowd to see him was absolutely right mindset. I, I, it would I, be I nice. Say, I, I think it, I, 
I think it would be funny to, uh, like, um, if you got a, like, terminal disease to, like, kill yourself in a spectacular way, and then in the suicide note, you write, like, I did this because the documentary about Woodstock was so shitty. I just want to see if the Netflix one maybe does... I mean, you could go to, like, Metal Sucks or, like, Loudwire or something. I'm not saying they should have me on there, but maybe somebody that can speak with authority to about the people like me that were there that didn't do any sexual assaults. And honestly, this is the first time for me being out of the state uh, without my parents or anything like that. I was... Uh, 19 when I went to this thing I also got like in a lot of trouble with my girlfriend for doing it uh, uh, but it was like I didn't talk to another human being that I didn't come with to Woodstock 99 because <laughs> I was so afraid of everybody I just I, I thought I was I truthfully and this is very stupid I thought I was in New York City, really, <laughs> and uh, I didn't understand why there weren't a lot of buildings, and it was a very weird experience for me. <laughs> well, I, I actually have a question for you about that, Brian, because oh, throughout the documentary, they just keep speaking to, they show you the pictures of these crowds of people moshing and dancing, and they keep saying, these men are angry. These men are so angry. Look at how angry they are. And then they cut the footage of them. Uh, and I, of course, I don't want to dismiss all the actual acts of violence, especially the v- sexual violence that happened there. But they keep cutting to people who look a little haggard, a little worn out, very sunburned, but a lot of people who look like they're having essentially a good time. And I know I that there were a lot of like bad facilities there. But I mean, can you speak to that? Did it seem like people were having generally a good time, even as like the systems of like control and regulation and you know security broke down? You know, it's it's kind of fun. Yes, I had like a great time at this thing. I wasn't there for the riot because, uh, again, miserable. It just was a miserable and it smelled that the grounds of this festival smelled a way that I've never smelled in my life. I felt <laughs> like I was standing in a toilet, uh, uh, but it was it was I I thought it was a really uh, I had a whole bunch of fun. I wasn't pissed off while I was there. I was I was kind of just enjoying the music, but I also like I think if you read into new metal as being just this like pure rage, you're also missing a, a central piece of new metal in that it, it is sad dudes. Like a lot of these songs, like Jonathan Davis, they don't show it, but at the end of his set he cried. Yes. On stage. No, yeah. Corn corn is about like trauma, a lot of it. And yeah, I do think it's interesting what you said that you didn't really like talk to people you weren't with because you were scared. Because I do I think this people do a disservice when they do these documentaries that are essentially about how young men behave, which is like an interesting thing because like so many violent crimes are committed by young men. And like, yeah, I mean young men statistically can be awful, but the other things young men are are sad fucking terrified of the world like guys that young at Woodstock like bad at everything and it does it does present a more interesting question than you know did Fred Durst make these guys do this and it's also I mean like the very frustrating thing is just sort of implying that like they were whipped up into a frenzy to commit sexual violence like men commit sexual violence in Ivy Leagues. Men commit sexual violence when they're the head of companies. They commit se- every every man everywhere like every type of man like everywhere does it. It's like a 
human problem. But this, again, this movie takes every interesting question about, like, the nature of young men and, like, where they were culturally in this moment and just sort of, like, just sort of, like, lets the air out a little bit and walks out the room. <laughs> right. I mean, and when you said you're right about corn, too, when 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 you talk about, like, these bands that that basically were, were kind of demonized in the documentary, like, when you talk about corn, if you just if you listen to their first album like yeah there's some songs that are pissed off but they also come from a place of like i'm taking power back from like the people who have abused me like jonathan davis had a fucking terrible life Mm -hmm. fred durst was singing about things that like i fucking understood what he was saying it was like kind of a mindless rage that you feel and don't really know what to do with but you're also very sad and you don't know how to handle that. And there aren't things in this world to help people handle that. It's, I mean, even now it's kind of like they don't, they, if you're a white guy that's middle-class or, 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 you know, the higher parts of working class and you're pissed off, it's just that you're, you're a pissed off guy. It's like a, a sign of privilege, that you're able to be pissed off about nothing. And it's like, it feels like there is something to look through there to find out why generation after generation of middle-class white guys and, and like uh, working class white guys are pissed off. Like, why aren't we like asking that question instead of just saying, stop being pissed off. It's privilege. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Like this is something, a even halfway competent filmmaker would do. Yeah. Tariq Nasheed would have asked this question, but like they just <laughs> don't. There are so many interesting directions you can go and there are so many interesting questions and observations you can make about music and men's anger. I mean, I think like beyond just like the way that this country like fetishizes uh, like sort of like black pain, a big reason for why rap is popular with everyone is that it's like it's a form of music where it's okay for like men to communicate like very deep pains in a way. But again, like, it, says that. this is like, that was something they could have brought up about DMX. Like could have talked about like the incredible depths and like contradictions that DMX's music, like even the songs he just played during his set showed, but they just don't, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit about anything. They're like, they're making a movie. F- so articles will be written about it. That's it. They, they don't, they want to prevent Trump from getting in again. They want <laughs> yeah, to, they want to prevent Woodstock uh, 2024 from leading to uh, the total destruction of America. And they think they can do that if they spend enough time being anxious about this restive, wild population of white guys that they're absolutely terrified of, uh, but have absolutely no connection to, uh, but who they are because of their position and culture, able to imagine themselves capable of, uh, of defining terms around and like they're hoping that they could just shame guys into not being that way. Well, that's it. I would say to them, you know, you know what other like young men are like really pissed off young black men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Young men are pissed. Like all young men are fucking pissed off. It's, it's crazy to act like, you know, that wasn't the case in 1999, that it was just like this this bunch of white dudes that are pissed. Well, I mean, the thing I is, took- that's the thing is they think that black pain, the black anger is justified by racism. Therefore, yeah. because we live in a racist society, any white anger is racist. 
right, and, and right. is well, is about hierarchy. Right, I and ta- it, 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 a lot of that pain like is racism, but a lot of like every type of man in America also feels like there's a lot of shared pain. A lot of things that are just like universal for young men that do make them mad because across racial boundaries or a lot of economic lines, even the same things that like animate that self doubt and like self hatred that like fuels young men to like act insane. Everyone kind of has it. Right. Me and Brett, me and Brett, uh, uh, last year and, and early 2020, uh, uh, I took him to see corn for the first time. They, they played here. They did an arena show and we got floor seats and we were standing down in a pit and like, he didn't get to go to any of these new metal shows because he's like five years younger than me. And uh, when we left, he said, like, you know, when you stand down in the pit at one of these shows, you see men like having feelings mm-hmm. in a way that you don't see them doing any other time. And I think there is something to be said about like when you get a bunch of them together you're taking this simmering set of feelings and they're having those feelings. Like January 6th was a bunch of people yeah. having feelings. You but, know? Yeah. But it's like, no, what he said about the pit, like I've seen the same thing. I've seen the same thing at like a Yo Gotti concert. Yeah. Like it's like for like men across boundaries or across like any ethnic lines or anything like music is kind of like the one way that everyone can access emotion in this communal setting outside of just like getting really fucked up in a basement. (laughs) Right. People are hugging. People are hugging at these shows. Like people that don't know each other are Mm -hmm. going up to each other in the pit and like hugging and saying, Hey buddy, are you okay? And shit like that. It's just the way that it's a, a way that like you don't see people generally have, in other places it's 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 very it's very weird to to demonize the way that a bunch of people kind of receive receive and, their music and like mm-hmm. and sort of similar to like i mean you know if if the, the film is going to make the glib connection between you know mosh pits and the january 6th you know riot on the Capitol, i mean like a connection would be like a failure of logistics because like you know a yes. mosh pit can be like a very fun healthy like cathartic experience for people of like of you know like uh, expressing physically like the energy and feeling and emotion that they have but in order for that to be safe and fun you need you need security and a venue and like like preparation of people who really know what they're doing like felix like when we were at the every time i die show like the fucking Mm -hmm. pit at that show was insane I was like in, the, I was in it. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah. But like the the venue and the security there really knew what they were doing. Yeah, about, like how, how to like fucking like you know like like you know like like uh, like sort of carry people if they're crowd surfing over the railing and sort of like you know, usher them off to the side. Like the, it yep. was just done in a very professional, safe manner. And then like you know the January sixth riot wouldn't have been a fucking riot if like the Capitol Police or anyone had done their fucking job. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And, and, they and, let and, that like, shit happen. Also, also, they let that shit happen. Also, like, put the credentials in their pocket. Just like, yeah, just like the peace <laughs> patrol, the peace patrol. And I guess one other thing, I really got to give credit to Jonathan Davis because he's one of the only people interviewed in this movie that I had like any respect for because he was the only person who said outright in the movie that like, uh, no, this is bullshit. Like uh, it, music is it's OK for music to be angry. Like it, like it's a healthy, good, like normal reaction, and like like I like I he's like I'm from the school that like no you can't blame music for like fucking society's problems like it's just like he was the only person who gave voice to like what I think is a totally common sense fucking frame of uh, frame of reference for like how to approach this stuff. Yeah. Also, there was a he's lot a of common guy. sense 
when it, there was also like a lot to be said about like he's like you're standing on this stage and you don't fucking know what's going on out there you're mm-hmm. you're fucking far away from even the people in the front row that's the festival's job the, yep. that is the festival's job to control the crowd to have easy ingresses and egresses to have baffles to design the viewing area so that there are you know maybe more towers in certain places so people can get behind and away from things it it, it is the festival's job to keep and the venue's job or whatever's job to to do crowd control well that, that's and like you, why they have those two like extremely low iq boomers in there because they start <laughs> to try to like sort of uh they they start to sort of like absolve themselves of any wrongdoing but they're so fucking stupid they can't do that like <laughs> oh the documentary God, so makers dumb. are like setting them up to blame like limp biscuit and everyone for what happened and they kind of do but then the longer they talk, they're like, yeah, and you know, when a woman wears sunglasses, she wants to be raped. <laughs> it's like, Felix, what, dude? Do you remember at the very end, it was like, it was it was one of the main promoter guy who was like the biggest asshole. The guy who was like, yeah. there, there'd be like the press conference and they'd be like, um, uh, yeah, uh, just like a question here. Uh, there's no security. Um, people are dying of heat stroke and dehydration. Could you address that? And he's like, oh, well, if there's a question there, I'll answer it. But if you want to editorialize, maybe you could get up here. <laughs> so like... <laughs> At the end of the movie, I was yeah. I was watching this with Catherine, and they're sort of like, you know, like, what, what, what do you think accounts for, like, you know, like all the bad shit that happened at Woodstock? And he was like, talk about boomer nostalgia. He was like, well, actually, it was MTV News' fault because uh, they really portrayed, like, a, a negative. Uh, they only showed the bad stories. And I was watching with Catherine, and she was like, this is exactly like the people who said that we lost the Vietnam War because of Walter Cronkite or, like, the media. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's also no, like, a very funny... Literally I, it. I, the one other thing that really made me laugh is how they framed the people banging on the trash cans. Like it was some kind of a foreboding, scary thing. Like a drum circle had never happened. They were showing it with the, with, with the piano music. Like, can you believe it? These people were hitting trash cans with sticks. It's like, okay. Who cares? Like it's a safari movie. Yeah. They're saying like the savage natives. Like some guy in a fucking uh, in like a Allen Iverson jersey is going to throw somebody into a pot and boil them. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought there's one last thing I got, I got to tell you. Like I, I, I thought Jonathan Davis was like, uh, like, like very articulate and I, 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 I appreciated like he was like the, the only voice of reason in this movie. However, the one interview in this movie that's it's like 30 seconds of this movie but it is the only worthwhile cool part of the movie and that's when they talk to dave mustaine for like 30 seconds about lars and he is still so fucking like he's just you know dave mustaine was so funny because they introduced like you know metallica and napster and the whole war against music sharing and lars's crusade against files even in this movie yeah they're totally supposed to be in the movie so they just get dave mustaine and he's just going look i I, I can't really explain why Lars does any of the things he does, but you know, doesn't he have enough money? And like, that's it. Yeah. It, was so, <laughs> it was so funny. It was so good. I do love it. The Napster thing is like, that is like the best little, like if you want to explain what bad filmmakers they are, it's that because you could tell that like, first of all, you could tell they did all, they shot all this, like all the interviews, like chronologically, like they didn't just hit somebody down for like, you know, six hours and take what they needed what they what it seems like they did is like they would go to everyone individually and be like what happened here what happened here and then like go back the next day and the next day that's the only thing they could explain for why it feels so disjointed and shitty 
but you could tell towards the end of the movie when they're editing it, they're like, oh, yeah, Napster was happening at this time. That's music. <laughs> and, like, put it in when it relates to nothing. Yeah. And, like, nothing. to that point, Felix, like, in, in the Dave Mustaine interview, like, the funniest part is he's going, he's like, my brain is just saying, don't say it, Dave. Don't say it. But I see you sitting there and you're going, say it, Dave. Say it, Dave, about Lars Ulrich. <laughs> I was sitting at home. Molly and I were both shouting at the TV, say it, Dave. Say it, Dave. <laughs> yeah. I love Dave. It. I yeah. can't get enough of, of Dave being mad at Metallica for something that happened in 1981. <laughs> yeah. Like it just and also I the funniest him. thing about Dave Mustaine, the the absolute funniest thing about him is that he is in the second biggest thrash band in the world. Like he doesn't have any reason to be mad <laughs> anymore at Metallica. He's a very successful and rich guy. Yeah. I mean like on one hand, it is a moment of absolutely horrible, sub-incompetent level documentary making. On the other hand, it's one of the only good moments in the entire <laughs> It's movie. one of the only really fun, <laughs> fun uh, yeah. revealing, uh, like an interview that I was just like really happy to see that they got something very funny and good out of Dave Mustaine, but then like they're, they're off it in like 15 seconds. Yeah, they're like, like that's no, it. back, to, that's back it. to garbage, baby. <laughs> it makes you want to watch fun. some kind of monster three more times. <laughs> Like in a row. <laughs> oh my god, the Metallica he's the star that documentary. Too. Yeah. Oh god, dude. Yo, know, yo, know, we, you know, we should get like a live-in therapist. So like uh, every time before we have to record the podcast, we have to spend three hours with a uh, Serge doing yeah. trust falls together. <laughs> I love that. There's a part in some kind of monster where they talk about how the uh, uh, psychiatrist thinks he's part of the band now, and he's giving like <laughs> suggestions on guitar riffs and stuff. <laughs> that's almost World's as good as that, That's almost as good as Bobby Axe being an honorary member of Metallica. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Bob, yeah. Bobby X. Bobby X. You know when he's on the trading floor, it's like when they're shredding. Yes, <laughs> I like that. I like that little touch of every season. He's he's wearing a heavy metal band shirt and they play heavy metal like they. Yes. There's one where he's wearing a Megadeth shirt. and They're playing a Megadeth song and you're like, God, this guy's fucking badass. My, my favorite <laughs> moment on that show and possibly my favorite moment in the history of the Showtime Network is when uh, the season opens with him doing ayahuasca with wags. And yes. then they ride motorcycles back home listening to Bad Company. <laughs> so sick. So fucking tight. That Greatest, is a billionaire if you thing make, to if do. If you are out there and you make billions, I love you. You're the fucking man. This is the yeah. most fun I've had since, like, prime Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> yes, it is. It is the, it is, billions is Sons of Anarchy, like, the, the continuation of Sons of Anarchy, since they won't let Kurt Sutter make stuff anymore which I is do, you know yeah, very sad it's sad i do you know what's funny about billions i like i hear like second and like third hand from like people who i know who know someone who like works at a hedge fund or like even people i know who like have very like high paying jobs like not in entertainment like doing some type of like consulting or law they watch billions you know it's kind of about them in some way and they're like this is exactly what it's like. <laughs> like. It's so cool. It's so awesome. Like they, they want to be billions. Like I've had people who have like really good jobs be like, I've been watching billions and it's really been making me ambitious. <laughs> like it's the most, people. it is such a dumb guy show. It's incredible how dumb that show is. It's, but I love it. Like I'm, Glued every time I watch it. It helped get me through quarantine. Just one day I was me like, too. damn, damn, I'm just gonna watch. But like 
I think Showtime shows are hilarious. And I was like, fuck it. And, you know, 10 minutes in, I'm like, this is sick, dude. I well, love this. Yeah. Well, stay, stay on the lookout for the uh, Chapo Trap House directed and produced documentary, Sons of Anarchy, TV of Rage, the Kurt Sutter documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, you got to use me as a talking head in that one. For yeah, sure. absolutely. Absolutely. I want to do... I when I was watching this, I was thinking about making this movie, but about like Weird Al and like song parodies. <laughs> but like, it, like you know, it caused a generation of young men to think everything's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it, you could, uh, if somebody is smart, they will make like a twenty-minute version of this documentary about something kind of innocuous. Like yeah. Woodstock '99 is a failure, and like. But it's, 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 <laughs> It's like it's like Weird Al, and he's shot in this like very like heavy shadow, sort of like looking mournful. And he's like, in retrospect, looking back on it, I was playing with fire when I released "Eat It." Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah or or yeah. like they show the interview of of when Flea got mad because he did the yabba dabba 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 do now, and he was like, I just thought he'd do something more creative with our song. <laughs> 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 it's. It would be it would be awesome if it turned out Weird Al had like he was like he was like uh like he was with like BMF and like Big Meech and they're protecting him from everyone. They like love they love Weird Al. Like Big Meech is giving orders from prison. They're like no one lay, lays a finger on his head. One of the most yelled at I've ever been was uh when me and Felix did the first October. Uh, uh, we both said we didn't like Weird Al, and I yeah. I got DM after DM saying like, "What the fuck? Why, why don't you like Weird Al?" And it's like oh. you're allowed to like well, Weird no, Al. No. I listen to Corn. That's just no. justified. That's totally justified. By the way, <laughs> you're in Felix's hate of no, Weird Al, national. I don't treasure, hate him. One of our finest. I, I don't hate. I, I, I respect. I, I respect Weird Al. It's just like song parodies have never been my thing. But no. like, <laughs> yeah. I, I do respect him, and I like respect his like work ethic and i respect his commitment to like that type of humor i think is cool but like the first time i ever got flamed on an internet forum was when i was 12 and i was like i'm not really into weird al and all these people are like you are a fail tard who deserves to be have bleach poured into his eyes and for captain Captain kirk to shoot the lasers at you yank hive assemble they're trying to drag al they're trying to drag al get him no, that's like, I, it's like I've insulted so many other types, like different musicians online, and the most vitriol you get is if you insult Weird Al. Like Weird yeah, Al because because he, he doesn't deserve it. He's a fucking he's a treasure. No, he seems like a it, great guy. He does seem like an, a fantastic dude, but like I just I'm not really into song parodies. Well, for, for me, staircases I get were a big at... part of your childhood. Weird Al's song parodies were a big part of my childhood, Felix. Yeah, I I get yelled at for that for for saying Weird Al's not really my kind of sense of humor and for saying I will never have a pet. Like people are just like, What do you mean you're not gonna have a pet? I'm like, I just don't like pets, I just don't want one. But you're like welcome you, to one. You have a daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's perfect for that. Yeah. No. All right, gang. Well we've I mean, gone we, fine. We've gone very long today, but you know, there's a lot to talk about. And got to say, always a joy to have Brian Quimby uh, back on the pod. Always a joy to talk to you. Um, any any clo- any closing thoughts on Woodstock '99 as a cultural phenomenon, or Woodstock '99, the rather shitty HBO documentary? Uh, I did want to uh, lodge my full-throated art- artistic defense of Limp Biscuit, but I feel like we're out of time. I feel we like have gone shit. Like over ninety minutes. <laughs> um, everyone, yeah, you can listen every- to me on the POD cast give Limp Biscuit like. 
insanely high reviews. Look, and, all, and all I have to say is them. that Wes Borland is a fucking showman. He, is. And he leaves exactly. it all on stage. Final thing I will say is everyone, please check out POD because please it's check out good. Shocktober, even the season that I wasn't on because I was uh, working on the podcast with Matt. And subscribe to Street Fight if you don't already. We would not exist without them. They're the fucking best. They, yeah, I'm they doing. Put, they, I, they, they put out like so much cool shit just like beyond just like the podcast. Like they do really fucking funny and interesting video shit. They like. They, they like ran this awesome fucking zine. Like, no, Street Fight is like one of the great. It's like one of the best values you can get for subscribing to a Patreon. It's like a fucking three hundred sixty degree suite of amazing things for you. I need to get one of you guys. I I need. I I will take all of you guys. But my next, I do mini series on Patreon. It's all like short runs of shows. And the new one I'm doing is the Street Fight MCU reviews. And oh, it I'm stands in. for uh, Movies Cinematic yeah, Universe. It's not the Marvel, this original <laughs> MCU, the Movies Cinematic Universe. Like, <laughs> scary movie, not another teen movie, epic movie. This is, this is a, yeah, a, a, <laughs> the meta movie universe. I would, yeah. I would, love, to, I would love to do uh, Yeah, I am, I am in. I am fucking yeah. in. Was it Vampire Suck? That's another one. <laughs> yep, Meet the Spartans. Epic <laughs> movie. In there. Oh, yeah, God. epic movie, disaster movie. What? <laughs> We can watch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The original scary movies are very funny. Scary oh, yeah. movie. Yes. Scary movie first two three. is awesome. I like. Yeah, the first three are great. I'm. I've never. Um. I. I like have never really liked horror movies, but I watch all those movies because I had like a boyhood crush on Anna Faris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. Still do. Yeah. All right, gang. I think the, I think we should wrap it up the, for today. But uh, just to uh, co-sign everything Felix said about Street Fight, if you're not already a subscriber, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're everything yeah, you're that's wrong with America, bitch. and you're you're probably going to lead to Woodstock 2024 and Trump's uh, second term in office. So I hope you're. Happy. I also let me just say one more thing, and 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 I know I just plugged the last series we did was called Heat O'Brien Unleashed, and Hedo stands for Hedonism Two. And we talked about episodes of real sex with guests. (laughs) And I talked about my sex life and people think I'm fucking crazy. And you should subscribe to the Patreon to hear those episodes because they're absolutely uncomfortable and insane. Uh, The the Heat O'Brien live show will be at the uh, Sandals Resort in Grand (laughs) (laughs) Cayman. I can't do a live show with my wife watching me stand up there talking about like how I sucked my ex-girlfriend's titties for a whole year and not had sex with her because I was scared. Oh, I've <laughs> I, I have done like I have like said things in front of like my uncle, like my 100 year old grandmother, my mom, my brother, my sister. You just like you just got to lose yourself to the stage. I'm like Jonathan Davis. I'm like no, I just yeah. leave it all up there, and then later when I see my family, it's like, just kidding. <laughs> all right, I won't extend this anymore. I'm I'm sorry about that, guys. No, no problem. No. Yeah, it's been it's been, a, been a really fun episode. This was uh, there's a lot of fun talking about uh, Woodstock '99 with you, Brian. Um, let's let's wrap it up there for today, though. Uh, we're out. Cheers. You ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Don't talk back. Just finish cleaning up your room. Let's see that dust fly with that room.